Hello everyone, welcome to episode 59 of the Scottish Liberty Podcast. I have been extraordinarily busy with the Fringe Festival in Edinburgh this month, August, August every year, the biggest theatre and performance festival in the world. And as a consequence of that, we've not been able to record a new show. However, I do have an excellent, well, I think it's excellent, you might think it's average, mediocre, um, or you might think it's, uh, it, it transcends excellent. You might think it's the best goddamn interview ever. We were kindly asked by Riley Blake to join him on his show, Anarcho Agenda, and we agreed. How magnanimous of us was that? I have got that interview in the can, and that's what I'm going to play you as episode 59 of the Scottish Liberty Podcast. If you have been following Anarcho Agenda for quite some time, you know I love Scotland and Scottish culture and history and Scottish music. This time, I actually have some people from Scotland. Tom Laird and Anthony Samroff host the Scottish Libertarian Podcast, and they are joining me via Skype from Scotland. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you for having us on your show. Yeah, thanks. Great. You're welcome. This is episode 24 of Anarcho Agenda, and first of all, describe your path to liberty. Okay, uh, you go first, man. Okay, well, let's see. I thought I would put some videos up on the internet speaking about politics when I was kind of a progressive, and um, little did I know that Ron Paul was just about to burst onto the horizon, and with him a whole bunch of enthusiastic libertarians who gate-crashed onto my channel and started leaving critical comments and sending me to this video, that video, and the other. And it took a little bit of convincing, but uh, finally um, the libertarians won me over and I had was forced to eat humble pie and change my positions on economics. My introduction to liberty and libertarianism really, I mean, it was a long time coming. I was prior to this, uh, when I'd been involved I mean, I'm a lot older than Anthony. You can't probably like, tell. A lot older, yeah, like, a lot older. It's almost obscene. Yeah, um, it's almost old enough to be my dad. <laughs> well, you say that. So anyway, uh, yeah, I, I started out on the extreme right of the spectrum. Um, gave all that up in my sort of mid to late twenties, and I was politically agnostic for a long time. I'd given up. Uh, I didn't even vote anymore. I was also a member of the Scottish National Party at one time in my life uh, because I believed in independence, still do. Um, and believe it or not, I, get into, I was into a band, I'm into my rock and metal and stuff like that, and I, I was into a band called Stuck Mojo. don't know if, ever, if you've ever heard of them. I've never um, heard of them. Okay, they're, they're from the from the south, I guess it's from, a, I think they're from Atlanta, but uh, yeah. So anyhow, they, they had an, an album called Rising and at the very start of that album there was a, a guy doing a monologue, the guy's name was Neil Burtz and he had a, a radio show uh, uh, out of Atlanta that was syndicated throughout the US but the, the, the monologue was basically a monologue against Clinton and calling him you know, a despot and saying that he was the most corrupt president in, in the US history whether that's true or not is it, you know, but uh, I kind of liked the sound of that and I was going, hey this is, this is odd for a for a for a rock band to be coming from the right of the spectrum as I saw it, so I checked out Neil Burtz's radio station, 
uh, and they were on it. I liked some of the stuff that I read, and they it asked you to do this sort of political quiz, Q and A type thing, and I'd done it. Uh, so I did it, and the result that it threw up was that I was a right libertarian, and I thought that can't be right. Sounds too much like a liberal. I'll try again. Something's something's obviously going drastically wrong here. So I did it again, and it was still right libertarian and I thought what the hell is a libertarian you know uh, and that was really my introduction once I once I started to look in it I thought yeah you know what I've I mean at that time I was still pretty much into the drug war though I was very I've always been quite anti-drugs I still am but now I just think that I shouldn't be allowed to tell other people what to do so um yeah, that, that was that was my introduction into, to libertarianism, and it just got better from there on in. I found out all these cool people that I liked already, like Penn Jillette and Doug Stanhope were libertarians. Drew Carey was a libertarian. I thought, this is just, you know... What, what about what? Dave Navarro? Uh, I, I, well, I wasn't aware of that at the time, you know, but, uh, yeah, you know, all, all these cool people that I, that I thought that I really liked and respected. Is Dave here. Navarro cool, or is he just a libertarian because he's rich and famous and wants to keep his money? I have no idea. You can tell me. Well, not that there's anything wrong with being rich. So that's, so that's, my, that's my long-winded intro into libertarianism. I hope it was interesting for your, for your listeners. I, I thought it was really interesting that both of you had an interesting path to liberty. What's interesting is we both came from opposite directions. Anthony came kind of from the left and I came from the right and we've, we've met in the middle and here we are. Here I yeah. am stuck in the middle with him. Yeah. <laughs> right on. What is the state of Scottish independence nowadays? It seems like some people are predicting that it's completely dead after the recent parliamentary elections. Hmm, okay. Um, don't need to lead on that one. Uh, I think... Okay, basically the Scottish National Party uh, screwed it up, you know. They got involved, and instead of sticking to the script and sticking to what they were all about, you know, that was their whole raison d'etre from the, from the start, independence. And they got involved in too many other things. They started a love affair with the European Union, um, and it just confused an issue, you know. And a lot of people like myself are saying, well, you know, guys, uh, what's the point here? You know, I thought we were for independence. Now it looks like you just want to exchange one union for another. You know, uh, it's like you think being one voice in 29 is something. Yeah, that's what it sounded like to me. I mean, I, I've yeah. been watching this here in the States, and it looks like they wanted to trade, like you said, another unit for another union. And I was like, really? Yeah. Why won't yeah. you? Why don't just? Why don't you just want to stand on your own two feet and be your own nation and be an independent voice in the world? It's crazy, exactly. yeah. and um, a lot of the people who, um, well, it's it's funny the way that it's um, activated the issue because Scotland was so much fo- more for the European Union than England was in the Brexit vote. More people north of the border voted in favour of the European Union. It's very much confused the issue of Scottish independence for a lot of libertarians who were strongly in favour of Scottish independence because it's now now it's like, well, I don't... If there was another referendum for independence, it's like, well, I don't know if I'd vote yes now because if I'm voting yes just to go back into the EU, um, that's not something that I could be in favour of. I also mean, just to, to, to let your listeners know, not all 
libertarians and even members of the Libertarian Party are for Scottish independence. Some are for the union, the, the UK union, for various reasons, but I think probably the main one is they fear the consequences of an independent Scotland in as much as it would seem that, you know, left-wing parties would have a free reign, you know, um, and, and and that's the big fear for a lot of uh, libertarians in Scotland, that, that Scotland would become more left-wing socialist and would be like a, a socialist hellscape within about five, within five to six years. Yeah, so and that could be a huge concern if they become a socialist country, because socialism is, in my opinion, this great evil that has dominated European yeah. life. Yeah. And, and I, I, you know, I get it. You know, when I when I speak to to people who do, who would be otherwise sympathetic to to self determination, you know, and they say, well, look, you know, as much as I don't like the union with the UK, I certainly don't want one with the EU, and I certainly don't want a Scotland dominated by uh, left wing parties. But you know what? It's even the conservatives in the UK are are, are are moving to the left anyway. And a lot of their policies are indistinguishable from from the, the liberal left. So uh, yeah, they raised the minimum wage. I mean, they opposed its introduction under Tony Blair um, when the Labour Party were in power. But um, they since then, you know, they've said, "Oh, we were wrong about the minimum wage and things like that, stuff like that," which is just entirely populist. They don't come out and say, "Well, not only will the minimum wage destroy jobs, but it'll increase the price of goods so that uh, people on low incomes won't be able to afford it." They don't actually get out and make arguments for capitalism or free markets at all. They don't represent. Yeah. Um, no one does. That's why we need to exist, basically. If right. they did. If, if someone did, then we could, you know, just hang out, you know, and and have fun. But the thing is, no one's really bringing the argument forward for free markets and capitalism here. So we have to do it. So since we're talking about minimum wage, what do you guys mm -hmm. think about a living wage? Because it seems like a lot of people, especially here in the States, are in favor of this concept of a living wage. Okay. Um, well, do you mean uh, the universal basic income or do you mean just if someone has a job, they should be entitled to a living wage, like the, the wage that it costs to live? Let's talk about both. Okay. Okay. Well, there are two separate questions. The problem with the living wage is the same problem with the minimum wage, which is that um, it's trying to bribe people with a kind of short-term benefit, but the long-term costs are immeasurable. So if you increase the minimum wage to what it would create cost to live, um, okay, that might be some good for some people who keep their jobs. It's going to stop job growth in the long term, but more importantly, people aren't going to be able to get access to on-the-job training because no one is going to pay you to train more to train you when you're not making them any money back. Um, if you could take a job at a lower wage, yeah, you're taking a lower wage in the short term, but you're learning skills on the job, and in the long term, you could get a wage that's much higher than the living wage, and you won't need the government to insure it for you because it will be in your person. It will be based on your skills. Um, the, the other thing is that it puts people in a weaker bargaining position when it comes to the workforce. If you can just walk out of a job at any time and into another job, you go, yeah, I'm going to get paid less, but 
at least I don't need to deal with this boss who's an asshole. And the aggregate of everyone being able to leave a job where their boss is an asshole and walk into another job is that the general working standards will be higher because it costs money a lot, uh, companies a lot of money to keep on taking on new staff if everyone keeps on walking out. So I fear that well-intentioned policies like the minimum wage or the living wage actually put the poor in a weaker position. You should also look at what makes the cost of living so expensive. Why can't a bunch of young people get a small apartment and live six to a flat? Okay, it would be a little bit crowded, but yeah, no more so than people lived through most of history. You've gone into uh, we've gone into the country here and seen little bothies that are you know one one bed one room cottages with a bed and a and a kitchen, and they say families of ten used to live in a house like this. But in the short, it would be worth it for them if they could learn skills and put money away so that they could get their own place at some time but none of that's allowed because of government regulations so i say anything like living wage or minimum wage is uh, wrong-minded you need to look at why the cost of living is so expensive open up free trade so we can get cheap goods from the poorest countries in the world that will help the poorest people get richer and it'll also help the poorest people in in this country but you know, we, I, I think if your audience is libertarian, they know quite a lot about the economics of minimum wage and living wage. Um, uh, as for the, do you want to add anything to what I've said? Yeah, just briefly. I mean, for me, uh, I mean, I accept all the economic arguments, but for me, there's a there's a moral imperative, which is. Uh, I have the right to make my own contract as an individual, you know, with my employer for whatever price is acceptable to me. And, you know, it's a, it's a personal contract between me and my employer. I don't see that the government has any right to interfere in that contract. If they can tell me uh, a minimum wage, then they can. The next step is they can tell me the maximum wage. Then they can tell me what job I can take and what job I can't take. Then they can tell me where I can work and where I can't work and when I can work. And when it can, so there's no end to government interference once you go down that road. Sure. Um, but with the universal basic income, I know it's something that we looked into even as a party here in, uh, in Scotland. Um, we thought that as as a mechanism to move away from welfare and onto something more sustainable, or you know, or, or better than what we have, then it, it might be a possibility. But whatever way we looked at it, it seemed to work out more expensive. Than the current setup, and um, yeah, that's that, that's basically what we, we came out with. But I know that I can just say that in Glasgow, here in Scotland, I know they're talking about launching a pilot scheme of universal basic income. So it would be interesting to see how that work it works out. So we'll, we'll keep an eye on that. But Anthony, yeah, it's interesting uh, because. I think a lot of the places where they've done studies on the universal basic income, they've gone, look, we've given people a universal basic income and they've gone out and they've started businesses and stuff like that. But there were some factors that they didn't take into account, one of which is they knew they were only going to get be getting it for a while so that they invested it in the long-term future. And uh, secondly, where was the money for the basic income coming from? Was it being taxed within the community that was receiving it? No, I think it was brought from outside the community. 
So of course I could go over to my neighbor's house and take their TV and their yeah. and their bass guitar and bring yeah. it into my apartment and go, look, I'm living so much better. But <laughs> what you don't see is where that money comes from and the good it's not doing. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of I agree completely with Tam on the moral argument. Uh, which is first of all to provide a universal basic income unless it's provided by donation which I'm all for you do have to uh, initiate force and take resources from the working people and give it to people who are not producing things that other people want to consume and are freely willing to part with their limited resources to consume Um, I agree on the moral argument I talk more about the economic argument um, because I think it's a good way to start people getting interested in our ideas, but ultimately you want to you want to sell them on the compassion of libertarianism, but I think ultimately people need to sometime or another come around to the NAP, otherwise they're not gonna be um libertarians. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, um yeah. Tam's very strong on that side of it. I I, I like to to discuss the economic implications of policies because I think people at the end of the day compassion is important to them and they want to know that the consequences of policies they believe in are going to be good um, as well. So let's talk about the Scottish Libertarian Party. I was doing some research one day to see if there was a Scottish Libertarian Party and was really quite surprised and pleased to see that there was one. So how long has the Scottish Libertarian Party been in existence? Okay. Um, as a party, technically speaking, about four years. Uh, I mean, as a movement, we've kind of been there. At one time, we were part of the United Kingdom Libertarian Party, um, and we decided, uh, you know, that the way the wind was blowing, you know, I, I believe Scottish independence is inevitability, you know, it's just a matter of arithmetic and population and time, you know, I think possibly my children, my grandchildren will probably look back and think and wonder why anybody ever thought, you know, uh, been part of, a, of an economic and uh, sort of uh, political union with another country was a, was a, was a good idea. But... Um, we just had to say that, that was the way the wind was blowing and it would just be easier for us to, to conduct ourselves and conduct our business as the Scottish Libertarian Party as opposed to a, a small branch of the UK Libertarian Party. So the UK Libertarian Party had to uh, make a, a change to their constitution in order for us to do that. Uh, and they did so. Uh, thanks very much to them. And it wasn't acrimonious, you know. It was all very. It was like, okay, yeah, you know, fair, fair enough. Uh, off you go. And uh, that's exactly what we did. So it's been around, uh, I think, four years since since that actually happened. And since then, I mean, we started. I remember when I first started to look at the libertarian website in Scotland. Uh, week in, week out, month in, month out, there was never anything happening, you know. Uh, but now we have, uh, I mean, we're a proper political party. We've actually put up candidates in local elections and in the national uh, Scottish elections. We've had candidates stand. Um, and we have regular meetups, uh, regular events, and the party is growing slowly uh, but surely. Um, but libertarianism is a hard sell in mm-hmm. Scotland. I think it's a hard sell in general. But it's, yeah, it's a hard it really sell. is, especially yeah. here yeah. in the States. But I imagine more so in Scotland because it seems to me, at least from my perspective, 
Scotland has been ruled by kings, has been ruled by a parliament, and socialism seems to appear, appeal yeah. more to the populace than liberty. Well, I mean, it always comes back to the same old stuff, like who'll look after the poor, who'll do this, who, you know, it's like people get that if the government made ball bearings and they were the only people who were allowed to make ball bearings, people would say without the government, you wouldn't have any steering wheels or cars. I mean, people really believe that. Yeah. Um, and that's the problem we face. It's an idea that you're incompassionate if you don't want the government to do these things. It's the major challenge. And it's interesting because all these people think they're so compassionate mm. because they want to tax other people to give stuff to other people. They don't see, they get free virtue. Basically, they yeah. get to feel good about themselves mm. and think that they're good people without actually lifting a finger to help anyone. And this is the major challenge I'm seeing, which is why I'm kind of, in my, uh, experimenting quite hard with challenging the idea that it's somehow virtuous to hold a political position um, rather than actually take any, take any action because you've got all these mutual back you get all this mutual back slapping for being on the left like yeah we are right we care but without actually you know going on a protest is not feeding the hungry it's not housing the homeless um, do you know what I mean? So it's kind of like, yeah, yeah. But that, that's the major challenge I think we face in yeah. perception. It's the perception that libertarianism isn't compassionate. And it's one of the reasons why I wrote an article, which if you're listening, you can listen to scottishlibertarian.com forward slash poverty, which is, you know, what libertarianism can do for the poor. I also think that um, in terms of, the, I mean, you, you called it right, you know, socialism is a problem. There's a, yeah, it's a weird, weird thing. Everybody in Scotland, everybody's a socialist until there's one parking space left in the car park and they want it. You know, suddenly they're not a socialist anymore. And it's, uh, there's, a, there's, there's kind of a lot of that. I think there's also a sneering superiority. Because our larger neighbour, England, seems to be more conservative than us, we, as a nation, unfortunately, we seem to define ourselves by what we're not. You know, we're not England, and therefore, and we are more compassionate than that. There's a sneering superiority. We are more compassionate than England, uh, and therefore, we don't buy into all this free market stuff. We are, we are all about looking after people and taking care of people, um, which, of course, is, is, is nonsense, you know. Um, but that's, that's, that's kind of the, the way uh, people look at things. So and also uh, as one old guy had said to me at one of the hustings, one of the political hustings that we'd had here for the election, he said, "Look, he said to me, look, you know, um, you you guys are not the the Tea Party. You know, if you want that kind of thing, you know, we we look after people in this country. If you want to be like that, why don't you go and live in America?" And this idea that libertarianism is some sort of American import. Yeah. The guy should read a book. You know, <laughs> exactly. we gave it. We gave it to America. We gave it to the world. You know, Adam Smith and David Hume were born here in Scotland. You know, and that's and that's we true. The Scottish, yeah. the Scottish have definitely influenced the libertarian movement for good. The Scottish in Enlightenment, man. You know, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no question. And so it, it, that really and burns my toes when people start to think that, you know, that it's, uh, this is some sort of American. But we gave it to America. You guys probably perfected it, then screwed it up, <laughs> and, and then exported it back to us. Like, you know, so it's, it's always been here. 
Um, we, you know, the emblem of the Scottish Libertarian Party in Scotland is a phoenix uh, rising from the ashes, you know, and that phoenix is that free market uh, sort of philosophy and free market uh, thinking coming back and taking root again in Scotland and, and, and flourishing, and we, we hope that's what's going to happen. We're not optimistic, but we, 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 it's worth fighting the good fight anyway. Yeah, and the other thing that annoys, sorry if this is a non-sequitur, but about this idea that, oh, we take care of people, therefore we're socialists. The thing is that when the government starts doing things that the community is meant to do, like take care of people, the necessity for a community disappears. You know, six out of seven million uh, British labourers used to be members of friendly societies. There's no friendly societies anymore. They don't exist. Unions used to give unemployment benefits to their workers and help them find jobs and stuff like that. Now they just go and lobby the government because it's seen as the government's job. You know, churches used to do work locally. People were um, involved in societies for mutual benefit. Uh, it now was much you, more communitarian it, rather than communal. Exactly. Yeah. You need that community, but now but now we live oh we live in such an atomized society and it's so capitalist. No, it's nothing to do with capitalism. It's the fact that you don't need to know your neighbours uh names anymore because if yeah. you're in trouble the government's there to take care of you it's people and people see problems with the world and it say something someone should do something about that they don't think, well, I'm someone, yeah. I could do something about that because it's, someone else. because it's the government's job now. When it wasn't the government's job, then there was a reason for people to think it's my job. So basically, government is the end of people caring about each other, of, of doing things for each other, of looking after one another, because now it's always someone else's job. So that's what pisses me off about that argument. The way I look at this, and it seems like the government has monopolized charity instead of letting churches take care of the poor, letting communities take care of the poor. Because, mm -hmm. you know, if there was someone poor in your neighborhood, you could just go help them out, you know, give them a few yeah. bits of food or something. Or you could even help them yeah, with a few bit, of, a with a bit of money. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And now, because the government has monopolized that, they do it for you and it's a problem because you don't have to know your neighbors you can just get robbed by proxy and allegedly they're helped yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah and they've got no reason to do a good job of that because you can't perform a, first of all you can't defund them for doing a inconvenient a poor job and what's more they're not in competition with a bunch of other bodies that are meant to do the same thing so you can't say well you know, that body's doing badly, so I'm going to fund that body that's doing well. They've not got the market incentives to take the care of the poor well. And that is a problem when people aren't taken care of by the state. Because if they're not being taken care of by the state, they're going to get really angry and the state's going to be told, oh, well, you got to keep taking care of us because we're not being taken care of well. But like you said, there's no recourse for the people to actually say, we need better better health care or we need better this or that yeah they could always vote the politicians out but these these psychopaths always seem to come back so and what yeah. happens if they do cure poverty well then people start going well you know what's the need of government there's no poverty yeah uh, people can afford their own schools so they don't need public schools they can afford their own health insurance so they don't need a uh, national health service when the private healthcare is much better than the national healthcare, the end of poverty is like more or less the end of the 
the need for government, you might still need it to protect private property, you exactly. know, in a minarchist yeah. way. But government's huge. The end of poverty is the end of the need for most of the functions of government. Yeah. So, or, or alleged needs, the alleged need for them. Mm-hmm. So every crisis is another excuse for government. They, they, they yeah, survive. It's an they for government to get bigger every time. Yeah, yeah they, survive, they survive on crises. Just like the recent terror attacks in London, it seems like these government politicians are not letting these crises go to waste. No, because everyone's an opportunity to get some sort of legislation through that people would normally balk at. Um, but you go, here we go, you know, clearly something must be done. You know, that's the cry. And the uh, government will ride to the rescue with draconian legislation that will eventually affect everybody and not just the people who that is who is supposed to combat, you know. So uh, so that's that's the problem. You know, whether it be anti-terrorist legislation that forces people to or tries to force people to carry ID cards or clamps down on the internet or clamps down on free speech. Or um, or your right to a fair, free a fair trial, you know, or yeah. we can we can arrest you without charge for forty two days if we suspect you for of, of being a terrorist. That's you know all these sorts of things are brought in under the guise of protecting us from terrorism, and people just go along with it. It's really really sad to see. Well, here's the thing, you know, in the past it used to be that the government could take certain measures in a time of crisis to clamp down on some civil liberties in a short-term way until the end of the war. The problem is now we're always at war. You know, we're always at war. We were always at war during the Cold War, and then when that finished, we found a bunch of wars to get involved in in the Middle East. And then um, now we're always at war since the War on Terror began uh, 16 years ago. So do you know what I mean? It's like there's no end to it. There's no end to the breaches yeah. of civil liberties when you're always at war. Well, when you look at in- even income tax, you know, income tax in the UK was something that was brought in as an emergency me- measure during the Napoleonic War, you know, because we needed, you know, Napole- Napoleon was running rampant in Europe, and he needs to be defeated, therefore we need uh, income tax. And it was only ever supposed to be an emergency measure. And uh, as I understand it, I think every, and you know, somebody can correct me if I'm wrong, but as I understand it, in the UK Parliament, I think every year they have to go through the pantomime of um, putting through this emergency measure. <laughs> you know, every year, and everybody just universally votes it through. It's like an almost like, a, you know, it's just a, what, what's the word I'm looking for here? You know, when you just do something, it's just routine. You know, it's just a routine thing now. You just put this emergency measure back through so that we can keep the income tax going. Um, so that, that's how it, that's how it creeps in, and uh, there, there's there's all sorts of incidents. and that's, that's yeah. the thing. I mean, Theresa May, conservative prime minister, and she was poised even when she was home secretary. You know, and your home secretary is a in, in the UK is somebody who's responsible for the police and the courts and the prisons, and she was poised to bring in some real uh, draconian draconian measures when she was. In fact, she was a woman who who banned uh, certain speakers and certain uh, foreign people from coming to the UK, such as Geert uh, Wilders, the Dutch politician who, was, um, who, had, who had an anti-Islamic sort of mission. Now, I'm not about to say whether I think that 
Geert Wilders was right. I mean, what a lot of what Geert Wilders has to say, I disagree with. Mm-hmm. But he had the right to say it, right? And yet, you know, and yet he was barred and banned from the country, you know, uh, because he had views which were not politically expedient. So that, and, and that's a conservative prime minister that done that. So her track record uh, on liberty and on civil liberties is not good. And uh, you know, that's a concern. Yes, yes, and getting worse with uh, wanting to police the internet and all sorts of things. And uh, what you said reminded me because you were talking about. Uh, how the income tax got put in and it's hard to take away and how these infringements of civil liberties get put in, but they're hard to remove. Earlier on, you mentioned the UBI. Well, some libertarians say, well, you know, see if we get the UBI through, people don't need a minimum wage because they've got enough money, so we'll be able, and they don't need labor laws and they don't need this and they don't need that, so we'll be able to remove all sorts of laws if we bring in the UBI. But if you see what generally tends to happen is when something new gets added, it just gets added. Other things do not get taken away. And it's a really risky road when you say, well, the government should do this or that as a temporary measure, because as soon as you put in a temporary measure, you've got a bunch of people whose job it is to enforce that measure and um, they want their job to last forever and ever and ever. So if you had a government department dedicated to removing heroin addiction, I think you've just basically guaranteed that there will always be heroin addicts or even more yeah. people. They can always, heroin. They can always yeah, say, oh, there's going to be heroin, so we got to keep this department yeah. going. Yes, yes. And if they actually solve the problem, they'd be putting themselves out of a job. And not many people want to put themselves out of a job. So let's talk about liberty activism for a second. I have been following the movement of libertarians moved to New Hampshire pretty closely. I listen to a talk radio show out of the States called Free Talk Live, and they cover it extensively since they are in New Hampshire. Is there any sort of liberty activism going on in Scotland, whether it be Bitcoin outreach or whatever? Um, (laughs) We had one event recently. Well, I mean, there's liberty activism, and we're, we're looking at part, because now that the election's over, we're going to be looking at things that we can do, uh, whether it be just, we have an idea for libertarians in the community, which is just getting out there and doing things that need to be done and showing that libertarians are also compassionate and we believe that, you know, you don't need to have a government to, to help people out. So we're looking at ways to help people in the community in a real and practical way. So that's part of the activism. We've just started uh, a, a student wing of uh, the Libertarian Party in Scotland, Scottish Libertarian Students. We had our first conference uh, just last week. So, uh, and Abe Mamie is, uh, is the guy here in Scotland who's in, who's in charge of that. So, yeah, yeah, we're always looking at ways to, but we don't have, there's nothing as yet on the scale of uh, of what's happening in New Hampshire. And it'd be interesting. I would, I would love to look at something like that. I know that Norway uh, has also got something uh, going on uh, similar to what's, what's happening in, in New Hampshire. So, I was just thinking if only this was communist strategy, if they only they just all moved to the same place, the yeah, same yeah. island, then yeah. we could just sink the island. Sorry, that bit. No, it'd be great to, to, to buy a, a piece of land and you know just and just start a libertarian community you know, that, that, that'd be fantastic to do that but we, we certainly don't have the, the, 
the wherewithal financially to do that with the Scottish Libertarian Party. But I'm, I'm really interested and excited and uh, by the, the Free State project that's going on in New Hampshire. And we had one of our podcasts was dedicated to that to that concept, and we had a guy called Vince Perfetto who, who came from America, from New Hampshire, to tell us all about that. And it's a real interesting project, and I think it's the way to go. You know, it's not just... I mean, we get involved in the political, obviously as a political party, we get involved in the political process. That doesn't mean to say we have a whole lot of faith in the political process. We don't. It's just a way of drawing attention to the movement. Um, but, you know, there's all sorts of tools you can have in your box. One is, is taking part in elections. Another one is actually doing uh, political yeah. activism and looking at ways to make government irrelevant. That's true. Like you, you, know, exactly. you mentioned yeah. Bitcoin. Yeah. That's great. You know, anything like that. And we're always open yeah. to, to that kind of thing. I think that if libertarians were more organized, there's lots of counter-economics that we could do. You know, with the technology that we've got, it's only a matter of time before someone creates some kind of online university that will get you better courses than yeah. you can get in any real university and uh, that can make the state redundant there's uh, things like that um, healthcare clinic the Oklahoma surgery center that um, make does operations for a tenth of the regular price and people travel there to just get their healthcare over the counter instead of going through the bureaucratic and uh, but th that's only one and the guy who runs that is a libertarian you know he says uh, fundamentally, he's he's for the moral argument, and um, there's lot there's lots more that can be done in terms of counter economics, and ultimately, I think that it is counter economics that's going to win the day for liberty. It's technology, you know. It wasn't about. Well, sorry, yeah. I think that's going to be an enabler. Yeah, but I think that for me, the most important thing is if we can to try and get our kids out of the grip and influence mm. of the of the state. If you can do that, then you're on the road to, to freedom. Because while the state has a monopoly, and it kind of does here in Scotland, on educating mm -hmm. children, the state is never going to produce citizens that are capable of living without it and citizens that are capable of questioning it. So, uh, you know, I would love to, to, to be able to run some seminars mm -hmm. on teaching parents who are interested in how they can uh, homeschool their kids or get involved in small sort of community groups to, to you know, maybe even take it in terms to, to teach uh, to teach their kids. But yeah, try and find a way to get because it's difficult because there's all sorts of legislation. Yeah, if you've got laws. lots of skills and you're very um, self-sufficient, you don't really need government very much. You don't. You, you can pretty much rely on yourself. Yeah, yeah, government hobbles people. You know, they go through 11 to 13 years of a uh, mandatory education system. They don't learn one skill that will fetch them 10 pounds or 15 bucks an hour. And in a time that's long enough to become a concert pianist, they don't learn how to look after their finances. They don't learn um, how to deal with their emotions, how to form uh, fulfilling relationships. How to go to a job interview. Yeah, how, you know, how to resolve conflicts. You could, all of these things are things that children could learn. How to be a good parent. Yeah, um, how to take care of their body. I mean, do most people know what their gallbladder does? I sure don't. You know, <laughs> why, why? That's part of my body. Why don't I know how to take Proper, you know, why do I know what my body does? You know, it's, it's crazy. These are the fundamental things that everyone should know. And uh, 
and and they don't, you know. So these are the things that we need to inculcate in our in our children. Make sure that they know all the most important things, you know, how to use reason and evidence, how to argue effectively. Um, these are the basis of being able to actually go out into the world and get um, make life happen for yourself. And you ain't going to learn any of it at school. So yeah, I can definitely second that. I think all the skills that you guys mentioned, I actually learned from my parents. So a lot of skills Lucky. I actually learned at home, which is yeah. actually really good. So I think I think parents also need to take a mm-hmm. hand in their child's education. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my mother wasn't an academic. I mean, she barely finished school herself. You know, she came from a, quite a poor background. She came from a family, a large family. You know, she was the oldest of about, you know, 12, 13 kids, you know, uh, you know two of which died in infancy. And, you know, she, my mother taught me to read and write before I went to school, you know. And if my mother was capable of doing that, I think I think most people are capable of teaching their kids to read and write. You know, and once you once you have those two skills, once you can read, you know, you can pick up books and you can you can pretty much self educate. Exactly. So let's talk briefly about Atlas Shrugged and how it's paralleling okay. our world today. I really love Atlas Shrugged. I, my best friend really? and I are reading it together. Both of us really enjoy it. We talk about it a lot. And it seems okay. like there are a lot of parallels to society. Anthony and I were talking on a Facebook post about how in a, there was a London fire and That's all true, of a sudden yeah. people wanted to steal property from somebody. Yes. So yeah. let's talk about this for a second. Yeah, well, sure. Well, I mean, uh, okay, Atlas. I mean, I've, despite any uh, misgivings over that, I mean, I, I read Atlas Shrugged about uh, a year and a half ago. I found it hard going. Um, I, you know, I, I know what William F. Buckley Jr. meant when he said he had to flog himself to read it. Although, having said that, it was there. There was moments of absolute blinding genius and brilliance interspersed by moments of for me kind of like almost Mills and Boone romance that I could have I could have done without. Yeah. But I but it was nothing if not prescient. Uh, and I think I mean my favourite Anne Rand book is uh, We the Living. I think that's that's a phenomenal book and that really brings home what communism does, how it starts and how that slow ratcheting. They're very similar thing. books in yeah. that way, yeah. in the way that they both demonstrate a very similar phenomenon, which is the grinding growth of state. Yeah, that ratcheting. Uh, yeah. We the living in a communist society, Atlas Shrugged in a mixed economy. Yeah. And I think the thing about this tower is that um, a bunch of yeah. people... Uh, died and a bunch of people had to flee their houses because a, a whole tower block of apartments went on fire. An absolute tragedy. And exactly. the opposition leader, who's a card-carrying socialist, said, well, there's some people, there's some empty properties um, that are owned by people who don't live in London. We should just temporarily take it off them and house these people in these properties. And it's like, wait, wait, wait a minute. It's not a property right if you can just go, oh, well, they're, they're empty, we're going to take them. That's where it begins. And everyone goes, well, they're just 
owned by a bunch of overprivileged rich people anyway. Like, who cares about them? But that's how they get you. Yeah, and I said, is. this is the end of civilization. If this happens, it's finished. Because first they go, oh, they're just empty houses. Then they go, well, there's a lot of other empty houses that rich people own. I mean, why do they have the right to do that? Then they go, well, look, uh, we we have a responsibility to provide housing. I mean, look at these people who are living in this housing that we reacquisitioned from those rich people. Well, we should be responsible on allocating the society, and then it's game over because then they can just take anything from anyone at any time. And as soon as you do that, you won't You're have in yeah, basically yeah, yeah. you won't have anyone building any property for a start because they know it can be acquisitioned off them at any time. But you know, the next thing's your bike. You know, you're not using that bike while it's chained up. Well, you know, bikes should be, and 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 on it goes. And this is why I thought the parallels to Anne, yeah. Rand Atlas Shrugged were shocking because I thought, you know, they probably won't, it's not going to happen anytime in the next year or two. But if but given the outswelling of sentiment and support of this idea of just just acquisition other people's property, it's no big deal. It's not going to have any secondary or tertiary consequences or anything like that. You know, they live in fairy tale land. Yeah, they the do. Amount, the popularity of that and people thinking, oh, I'm so compassionate. I care so much about poor people because I want to steal someone else's house to put them in it. Uh, anyway. I could go on. And it's not, uh, you know, I don't believe for a moment it. that they would I have some it. sort of, uh, they would have some sort of lottery allocation of these properties. You know, eventually it would end up that party apparatchiks, you know, people who were family, you know, people who were relations to people who were members of the Labour Party, you know, they're going to be the ones who are going to get allocated these properties by the state. You know, it's going to be all very corrupt and all very destructive. And like I say, before you know it, you're going to be living in Zimbabwe. And it sounds far-fetched, but, you know, this, it, it, it's always the case. You know, nobody's living in a dictatorship until they are. Really. Yeah, exactly. You know? yeah. It's either Venezuela or, or Zimbabwe. You take your pick. Yeah, yeah. Both yeah. are bad alternatives. Is right. there anything else you want to share? I was just going to mention in uh, uh, as a tacked on point, now I don't have the exact story here in front of me, but there was a, a private company who just sold a bunch of houses or properties rather, they weren't houses, they were apartments, at cost price to the government in response to this disaster. So they just basically um, forewent making a profit to as a gesture to say look we're going to help rehouse these people who lost their houses by selling these apartments at cost price but you know it's uh, it's greedy capitalists you know but and and of course the government who actually was the was it the government who owned these properties that caught on fire or was uh, it a private public partnership uh, no the, that that building was was uh, was um, council council property right um, so, but, and they were but, warned but, of the fire hazard for a long time. But, but the, 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 the accusation, obviously, is it's austerity that's to blame. It's cutbacks. You know, if the government hadn't been cutting back uh, money, you know, then you know more money would have been allocated to 
to to help to help house these people more money would have been that they wouldn't have skimped on safety uh, procedures they wouldn't have skimped on proper cladding on the outside of the building that wouldn't have caught fire but you know the inquiry is ongoing we still don't know for sure exactly what caused the fire and exactly why it burned so much I mean we suspect it looks like it was the cladding that was uh, that was highly flammable you know which is not a good idea obviously um, but you know it's it's government you know this is this is a this is a government. This building was a government project. This building was a was 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 taken care of by local government, and you know you have to fall back on the well. If you only if only they had more money allocated, then this wouldn't have happened. Which something you know, would have happened somewhere at some point. Yeah. But the bottom line is, you know, you know, in terms of of the people, this is a it's a it was a terrible, tragic accident. Uh, and people say, well, it could have been avoided. Yeah, generally, most accidents could be avoided, you know. Um, but it's just, I, I feel you it's... Don't have, you don't have, um, you know, a crystal ball or a psychic yeah. vision to I just know. think it's unfortunate that some uh, sections uh, of the left have tried to, to make... <laughs> capital's the wrong word, but tried to make, uh, make hair of this and, and, and use it as political leverage, uh, Instead of just letting the people, you know, get on with it and get and get on with their grief, it's it's a terrible tragedy. Yeah, and people were coming out of the woodwork to help to bring food, to bring clothes, blankets, to offer uh, couch space for people who needed somewhere to uh, sleep. You know, yeah, the people were a lot more, a lot more, uh, a lot more efficient and a lot more capable than government was at housing these people and taking care of these people. And that's and, the and way they, it should be. Yeah, absolutely. People were really deeply moved to help. Communitarian, not communist. You know, that's 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 it. You know, the people don't get that one's voluntary and the other one's coerced. Well, the other, the only other thing I would say is, if you enjoy the anarcho agenda, I also recommend you check out the Scottish Liberty podcast. I think you'll enjoy our show, and uh, I want to thank you, Riley, for having us. Yeah, you're welcome. It's been a pleasure. Where can people find your podcast? You can type in Scottish Liberty Podcast into iTunes, or you can type it into YouTube, and you will find us both on iTunes, YouTube, SoundCloud, um, and if you're if your podcasting apps hooked into iTunes, then you then you should be able to access us with your podcasting app. Excellent. If you want to listen back to previous archives of my show, Anarcho Agenda, visit anarchoagenda.libsyn, L-I-B-S-Y-N.com. 